This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, this is another opportunity for us to apologize for not being here last week. We did a very quick episode that just basically said, "Hey, we're not going to be here because Taylor is swamped with deadlines and other things." So uh, we weren't here, but we're back this week. But we do apologize. We're going to try and be a little bit more regular. Uh, going forward, and we are coming Except up. Except we're coming into the holidays. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, but yes, of, of course, everyone gets a little bit of time off for the holidays, but not like two weeks before Thanksgiving. So we're recording this the week before, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and we were just talking about Thanksgiving plans. What are your Thanksgiving plans, Taylor? You know, um, for the, for our very, very, very long-term listeners they will know that Thanksgiving is my holiday. Like, you know, different people have holidays that they love and that they will never skip. And Thanksgiving has always been mine. And um, there's been, it's just, we, we ne I never celebrated it growing up uh, because it wasn't a thing for the cult. It's a very American holiday. Cult was very international, but we didn't really, we weren't big, big on holidays to begin with. And, um, and so my first time back in the United States, I, I was like, well, you know, just trying to do this thing. I, I didn't have any concept of how to cook a turkey. In my mind, it was a really big deal. And so I was like, I'll just start with a really small one. I think we ended up with an eight-pound turkey or something. It was just our little family. And it turned out really well. And it's kind of just been my thing ever since to just keep improving on it. And so every year, rain or shine, Thanksgiving, we're doing Thanksgiving, except this year. <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, I mean, I'm still going to cook the food because – Cooking is really the easy part. Over the years, Thanksgiving has grown and grown, more people involved. And I just, I there's so much going on with work and deadlines and trying to get my brain back and um, and life. There's just so much that I just, I just can't. And so um, I will cook and freeze and we'll eat off of it. But we're just really not doing much this year. So when you cook... How long do you have leftovers after after the Thanksgiving meal? Not very long. <laughs> never, never long enough. Um, even like I've got, I still try and keep the turkeys small because I find that um, they cook better and retain the flavor and the moisture a lot better when they're smaller. And so I do two of them. And so oh. I'll do like two um, 12 or 13 pound turkeys. And uh, I do them one day and then the next day. And... You know, if we can even keep the leftovers for a week, we're doing really good. <laughs> what side dishes do you do you have with this? Um, well, it varies year to year, but they're the one thing that I consistently do. It took me years to perfect the uh, the stuffing, um, uh -huh. which is what goes into the bird. One of my and favorite so, parts of the Thanksgiving meal is the it stuffing. It is my yeah, it's my absolute favorite, and so um, I will do that for sure because that's part of the cooking process for the turkey. And then um, after that, it really just varies this year because um, I don't have the time. The things like traditional things like 
mashed potatoes or whatever, I'm not even going to bother. I'll just do the instant ones. There's some instant brands that you almost can't even tell that they're not, that they're not the real thing. Um, and so, you know, just real simple sides. I do a, a cabbage salad, which sounds gross, but, you know, you think cabbage and salad, but it's, it's cabbage that's shaved almost paper thin in a sort of a oil and vinegar dressing. And it's amazing. And even people who don't like cabbage love it. And it's super easy to prepare. So I always do that just to provide um, a, a flavor backdrop to these other really rich things. It provides sort of a light, kind of in the same way that they, when you eat barbecue, they give you pickles. It's the exact same concept, but just different flavors and different, mm. um, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I normally cook for Thanksgiving and I have... I have probably cooked for Thanksgiving 28 out of the last 30 years. It's kind of my thing too, but it's really just, it's become a little bit overwhelming. And so this year we're, we need a break and we're just going away with not for work, just going away to just chill for a little bit, which is really nice. And so that is going to give us the opportunity to be aimless for a few days Oh, which I think segues nicely smooth. into our topic for today, <laughs> which is going to be aimlessness. All right, Taylor, tell us why aimlessness is on the topic list for today. Well, we're following in the heels of the last um, tutorial, not tutorial, but discussion we had about every scene needs a purpose. And we were talking about bookending flashbacks. And this is sort of a similar thing that doesn't have to do with flashbacks, but it's a little bookendy, and it it's aimlessness. And I felt like doing this as a follow-up to the previous one would um, help tie the two concepts together and reinforce what we were already talking about. Aimlessness is sort of like a characterization or a plot flow issue that I see I run into um, as I'm reading, and I see it more in earlier drafts than in finished finished books, but it shows up in finished books too. And it's the weight of it, of how much it can hurt a story depends on what you're writing. If you're writing literary fiction, for example, where characters and slow sort of moving plots or not even a super huge plot, but just the exploration of character and ideas is more important than the story and, and how those ideas are expressed, that aimlessness probably fits right in. Like it probably would not be a problem at all. But when you're writing genre fiction, and especially if you're writing genre fiction, like a thriller or a suspense or a mystery, aimlessness can really wreak havoc on your pacing and your characterization. And so there's a couple different ways to look at it. So I'm going to throw a few examples out here, but we're just going to start here. So with this first one, you have a situation where a character's on their way to do something. Like they're they're doing something for something. Like they're on their way. And we as a reader don't necessarily know what they're doing. We're just sort of along for the ride, watching it all take place. So the author will do this fantastic job of setting out all the steps from A to Z. So we get the great description and the details right, and we're there in the character's head, and all the plot boxes are ticked, and we're doing something, right? We've got character in motion, and it's great. And the, the except 
the one problem is that it's only after laying out all that framework, after the character has gone through all this, we've been with them in real time, they get to the end of the series of actions or movements, and they finally get to where they're going, and they've done everything they need to do, and then they stop and finally begin to consider their options about why they're there in the first place. So this, just to, to be really clear, that type of thing is completely different than a character going through all those same actions and then explaining, in retrospect, what it was they hoped to accomplish by that. That's a technique I use quite frequently, where we're, we'll see all these things happen and not totally understand what the character was after, and then afterwards go, this was part of the plan, blah, 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 blah. That works. But in this particular situation that I'm talking about, it's that we don't even know what the character is doing or why, and then it's only after they get there and they've gone through all of this that they start to think about what to do next. So it's rather aimless, right? And so here's where we run, kind of run into trouble with that. We have them go through all that trouble to do something. They only stop to consider the options at the end. It makes that character seem impulsive or not very thoughtful. They're just kind of flitting from thing to thing on the spur of the moment. They got all this, just do and then think, right? So let's just make up an example, right? To try and bring about in more specific sense what, what we're looking at. So we've got Mary, our imaginary character. She's on the run. This is a mystery or a thriller or a suspense or something. She knows she can't stay where she is, but she doesn't have any transportation and she needs a way to get out of town. So she solves her problem by heading to the bus station. And we see her go through all those motions of getting to the station and along the way we know she's panicking and we're deep inside her head with all the bad things that could happen to her and how afraid she is of being seen and getting caught and she's hiding and, and going through all these motions. And then she's at the bus station, she's standing in line for a ticket and finally right there where she's at the point where she needs to make that purchase, she starts to mull over the pros and cons and weigh her options of where she could go next. But that's not how life works, not how real life works. In real life, most people would, in a scenario like that, they'd start thinking, at the very, very least, they'd start thinking about their potential options on their way to the bus station. But more likely, the, this is how our brains work, before we even headed anywhere, in our panic state, scattered thinking, it doesn't matter, even if it doesn't seem like we're thinking, we're going to be pondering our options. We're going to be like going, oh my God, okay, uh, Joe lives in San Francisco. Uh, he might be able to hide me. Nobody knows he exists. Um, you know, and then I've got Uncle Fred who's out in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. He, he's going to be, you know, probably not happy to see me if I show up on his doorstep. I can't call him. I just have to go there. And we're going through all the options in this like hyper panic state. And whatever it is we settle on, that's what compels us to make our decision because Uncle Fred or Joe, whatever his name is in Oklahoma, he might be a bus ride, but or or, or a flight. Let's say you've got a flight to, to Oklahoma, but to get to San Francisco, that's just a bus ride. So we're not gonna go show up at a station because that would that the now what do we do, right? So that's sort of the logic flow of how thinking works in real life. It's cause and effect. But somehow on the page that cause and effect never actually makes it through. And so we get these situations where characters do all this stuff and then they start to think about their options. 
And that's because um, the author already knows what the character needs to do. And, and so they're putting them through all the steps. And then once they get there, trying to make it look logical and stuff, but that's just not how it works. So when we violate cause and effect like that with, with how real life works, what we end up seeing on the page are characters who come across as impulsive and not very smart. And sometimes it can be so jarring to, to watch them do that, that it, it can even turn what should be an, uh, like an otherwise likable character into an unlikable one. Because it's really hard for us as humans to relate to people who make dumb decisions. It's hard for us to relate to people who, especially in fiction, like we know we might know people in real life who make dumb decisions or who are impulsive or whatever, but in fiction, we expect things to make sense. And so when, when you have this character who just seems very flighty and very impulsive, it, it, it's hard to like a character like that, unless that's specifically what you're designing that character to be. But in that case, it will make sense to the story. It won't be out of, out of context to the story. The other thing we get are decisions that are meant to be logical and have meaning within the, over, the overarching plot. They become happenstance. So you, you've set out to design this plot and it's all supposed to make sense. But because the decision is made after the character is already in place, so it violates the cause and effect thing, they, it starts to feel very slapped together and, and just kind of um, almost to just un, not thought out. And it's gonna have this unsatisfying feeling to it. And in both instances, the character and the story aspects, the reader, they might not even be able to, to pinpoint what isn't working or why they're not really enjoying this, but they're gonna feel it. You just make no mistake about that. They're going to feel that something's just not, this doesn't feel right. And that's going to be emotional grit that kind of pulls them out of the story. So here's how you fix something like that. The practical side to fixing it just involves moving those chunks of text around so that the character's analytical thoughts, the ones that, for example, she was figuring out at the bus station, they get interspersed through all the movement getting to the bus station. And so by the time that character would get to the bus station, hypothetically, in this very general example, they already have a sense of what the options are. And you can even have them make the decision before the decision. You can have them make the decision in line. But the point is, they've thought about it all. And all the information that the reader needs to know, they've been given before that decision is made at the place of... Uh, where the thing, whatever the thing is, is happening. So that's fixing it like that. That's the easy part. The hard part is seeing the issue in the first place. Uh, if you could see it, you, you wouldn't have done it, right? It, it, it's one of those things, like with a lot of these things, if you knew about them, then you would avoid them. So for authors who aren't yet at that stage where they can catch that type of plot construction story problem, before it ends up in their first draft, then just go ahead and write. Don't worry about it. The subsequent passes, because you're going to be making more than one pass, that's the best place to spot them. They're not hard to fix. You don't have to restructure your story around them. You just have to move chunks of text around and kind of uh, polish it up to make the, those concepts fit. So once you have your full story and you're going back to look at each scene and character decision, you just look through it. Look at those things through the eyes of the lens of cause and effect. Is this cause and effect? Is, is this cart before the horse? And just look at it from a sort of step back analytical view. 
And if if the cause and effect is in the right order, then you're, if a scene isn't working, it's probably not that. It's something else. If, this, if the cause and effect is not in the right order and you feel like the scene isn't working, well, switching those things around will probably fix everything. So here's another way that aimlessness will show up um, often. And I mean, I'm just kind of speaking broadly, generally. Um, you, sometimes it's impossible to, to point out all the different ways that, that this stuff turns up. But um, so let's say we have a character who's just received some weighty news or they're struggling with something personal or they're trying to figure something out. Essentially, there is some form of inner conflict going on that has the character deep in thought or doing an analysis or trying to figure out, put pieces of the puzzle together, examine their emotions, anything. It's going on inside their head, right? And so the, the author needs a way to functionally put that on the page where, you know, you can't just open a scene with a character deep in thought. It does, you know, a scene has to have a framework to work in. So what the author will do is have the character go for a walk or they'll sit or they'll drink tea or they'll stare at a painting or they'll just have some purposeless motion that's going on to provide the vehicle for them to have all this inner dialogue. And that motion has nothing to do with moving the story forward. It's just there to provide the framework for these, this inner struggle thing that's going on with this character. So we get a lot of walking, get a lot of wandering, coffee, lunch, a lot of solitude. And here's where we run into trouble with that. As we've already discussed, scenes are settings that exist entirely as a vehicle for a character's introspection. They doesn't serve a purpose to the overall plot or story. And this has the unintended consequence of making what could be very critical information and important, both to character and story or one or the other, it's gonna feel like navel gazing or it's gonna feel like a filler scene. So if you've ever read a book and thought, man, those people seem to drink a lot of coffee. They're eating a lot of sandwiches, you know, those types of things. That is precisely because of this, where the author has built out this framework as a way to provide um, this, this inner dialogue. Sometimes we also see that as a way for two people to have a conversation. Now, the conversation aspect of it is less... I don't want to say damning, hurt, harmful. It's less of a big deal because that interaction between two characters almost provides its own sense of purpose, and that's just kind of bigger than the scope of this particular topic. We're talking specifically here about when a character's alone and they're just off for a walk for no reason, just to go clear their head or whatever, as a vehicle to provide an analysis or whatever's going on sorting through their options, right? It's aimlessness. They're not doing anything. They're just walking. And so because of that, those scenes kind of become distracting, you know, where people are, we want to, we want to feel like things are moving forward. That's, that's, we want to engage with this, the move, the story forward movement. And so what happens is readers start to skip, they start to skim and they start to miss that information that those frameworks were built out to provide. So every scene needs its own purpose beyond just the information you're trying to provide to the readers. Um, sometimes that can be really hard to do. Like there's, it's hard to find something plot related, authentically plot related. You don't want to just 
make up scenes, make up plot points as a vehicle for these things, because that's going to cre create a non-cohesive feel to your story. So what do you do when you don't have a way to construct this scene with something that ties other things together, or there's enough plot related stuff to fit these thoughts in while the character's doing something plot purposed, what do you do? Because if you have something like that already, you wouldn't have built out this framework of, of aimlessness. So there's a couple ways that we can fix it. The, they're, and they're both fairly simple. And the first is to summarize the aimlessness and to put the information that the character is analyzing through in a sort of past tense. So for example, so she went for a run to get away from the mental noise, came back with a clearer head half hour later. What she realized was these three things were bothering her. They were bothering her because of this, 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 and here's what she could do about it, and this was her solution. So wh why is that different than walking and wandering and, um, and then you know, filling in all the stuff? Why is that not navel gazing? Why does this work? And it's because when we're showing the walking in real time and the thinking things out as they're walking, it tends to go on as they analyze all the options and the walk drags on and it starts to get long and boring. And doing it this way, it forces a sort of conciseness um, where you're not actually in the scene, you're stepping back from the scene, summarizing and you're recapping and you don't have the luxury of taking the reader through every single step the same way you would if you were showing it happen in real time. So it forces you to be concise. It forces you to get to the point. And so you get that information down and you move on. The action has already been performed. We already know why the character's doing what they're doing. We already know where they came at the end. She went out, she came home, action, boom, bang, done. Here's the, the summary. And now we move into the next action. So we're getting the details, we're moving on, and it has a completely different feel when we're there watching somebody just wander. Now, you can think of it, even though we, we talk about how we don't want to write our stories as if we're watching them on film, because that's going to give us um, a very sort of distance uh, feel to it, different topic, um, more than we can go into today. Um, it, we can look at it as, what, how would you feel if you were watching a movie and the, we spent five minutes of screen time just watching the, the character pick flowers in a field. Like that's what montages are meant to solve is all of this aimlessness and you get it. You can't have a scene of a, a full three minutes of every single thing the character is doing. It's just, it's a summary, right? And unlike movies in books, we're actually inside the character's head so we can hear their thoughts. We don't have to show everything um, that way. But the point being that if you take, if you just keep taking readers on walks or lunches or or coffees so that the character can sit and um, think about stuff, it's going to feel like nothing is happening. And you solve that by just getting it out of the way, giving a summary, and moving on. Another way that you can fix it is to take it even one step further, and you essentially put all that in flashback. So every scene has to have a purpose. Um, you move to the next scene, you, you've got a fresh scene, you, the, the character has purpose in this scene, they're doing whatever they're doing, and, and you can flash back to it. That can be the bookend, 
you flash back and explain how they got here and why using the same analysis that we would have used during that long walk. Now it's a summary of it again, which is similar to the first idea, but it's done in flashback of she went for, she had gone or whatever, went for a walk, cleared her head and in the process figured out this, 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 and this, which is what had brought her here. And, and then you, the flashback closes out and you move on with the story. So they're kind of similar, but one is done in real time with a summary of all that, whatever that aimlessness was and all the thoughts. And the other is you, you're not even in that scene anymore. You're completely somewhere else and you're moving a story forward. And then you just summarize the whole thing in one small recollection and keep on moving. That's the easiest, fastest way to eliminate uh, aimlessness is essentially to eliminate the scene and encapsulate that information in another way. All right, that was that was really interesting, and I was thinking of one scene that I had written where it is essentially exactly what you have described in the second scenario. So I need to go back and take a look at that, take a look at that scene and see how I can rewrite it because I think it's a little bit lengthy. It's I remember when I was done with it thinking, wow, that's way longer than I thought it was going to be. There's just not a lot of information delivered in the scene for the number of words it is. So that'll be an interesting exercise for me. And so hopefully you guys out there listening, um, maybe you have something of your own that you're thinking of that this applies to directly. And if not, you know, give it some thought because there may be some other things. The first example I couldn't think of anything specific, but the second example that Taylor gave, it's like it was spot on with, uh, with one whole scene in, uh, in, in one of the Reggie stories. I was just going to say, do we have time that I can add one final little, oh my gosh, I just thought of this while we were recording here. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think possibly one of the reasons why this shows up is because, especially for new writers, we are hammered home with this concept of show, don't tell, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. And so there's this idea that we have to show the character doing everything. But people who say show, don't tell, either A, don't know what they're talking about, or B, they're referring to something else. And we can have another discussion on what show, don't tell actually means. But for, for this particular instance, I think it part of what's driving this this material to show up in people's work is that, especially in, in authors who are haven't don't have a lot of experience under their belt, is they're trying to show and not tell, and they don't have the experience yet to see where that doesn't apply. In this case, it is the aimlessness. Okay, that's that's great. So that wraps up this week's show. We will be back in your ear next Tuesday. Thank you guys so much for listening. And hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving if you're in the United States. And if you're not, then have a great week and we'll see you next week.